Jesse, where are you right now? You know goddamn well where I am, Katie. Yes, Jesse. Jesse is in his bedroom. I am in his dining room. No, I'm in my office. You're in your, okay, I'm in my office. he's in his office. Hard to tell the difference because it's both rooms are just mattresses on the floor. Uh, yes, so we are together in the same city, in the same apartment, in two different rooms. You want to explain that? Yeah, we're fucking idiots. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, we have we have a level of technical expertise that is far below like early come down. I think that my grandparents would would have better technical know-how and they're dead. So so basically what happened was Katie's in New York. We did the live show a couple nights ago. If we were any normal podcasters, it's like, oh, we're in the same apartment. We'll just plug a couple mics into a mixer. Sure. <laughs> we'll sit at the same table. We'll have a normal conversation. Neither of us knows how to do that. So we're in different rooms Recording into different mics, it, it's it, you, it's not even worth It's just pathetic. We're a horrible podcast. I don't know how we have listeners. I think this is actually better because this way we don't have to look at each other. This is just incredibly dismor- demoralizing. Like we're, we're professional podcasters to the point where we get to do live events. We don't know how to plug mics into mics. It's true. It's true. But this way I've been, I've been trying my damnedest to not make eye contact with you. We've spent a lot of time together this week. Uh, we've traveled together. I went to your hometown, stayed at your house, and I have yet to make eye contact with you. So this is better as long as we can. Yeah. I just, yeah. I assume that was just some cognitive thing. I'm neurodivergent. Did you have something else you wanted to say before we got into this? I did. I w- so Do we want to talk about the live events? Or okay, go ahead. Sure, but let me tell you one more thing. So I was just a little while ago when I was taking a walk around your neighborhood. I got assaulted. You did. What happened? Yeah, I was I was walking underneath a tree and something fell out of the tree and hit me in the head. Was it a hate crime? It was. A, yeah, I got hate crime by a squirrel. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> was it like an acorn or what? Yeah, it was an acorn. I got hit in the head by an acorn. This is a people keep talking about how New York is is getting more and more dangerous, and I one hundred percent believe it. Wait till you're you're um, taking a walk at night by a park, and you look up, and there's a raccoon just four feet from you, sitting on a branch. Like they're surprised you're there. There's a lot of weird nature in this. And by raccoon, is that what you call the homeless people? It's mm-hmm. very rude, Jesse. Yeah. Katie went on a walk in Prospect Park in hopes of tracking down, and her words, not mine, killing. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who killed Moose, and she was unable to find him. Yeah. Uh, for people who don't know what we're talking about, my Moose is not dead. Another Moose was killed. You can go back and listen to our last premium episode. Oh, yeah. People find that alarming. Yeah. But they, they don't subscribe to our- Yeah, fuck them. If you want to not be terrified, become a premium subscriber. Yeah, but my Moose is fine, as far as I know. I did leave him home alone for five days, but presumably he's fine. I left a big uh, big hole in the bag of the dog food, so he should be able to eat. Katie, what is the name of this technically incompetent podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single, and Katie, today we're going to talk about some uh, cancellations. Yes, indeed. We're going to be talking about, well, is it a cancellation? We're going to be talking about some drama at a literary journal. Yeah, there was some cancellation there. Well, self-cancellation. People reti- re- people retire. I can't talk. It's been a long few days. People left the literary magazine. We'll get into that. We're also going to talk about our own cancellation. We were literally canceled. We were, or did we cancel? Well, we'll get into that. But first, how do you think the tour is going so far? Other than this, whatever the hell we're doing now. The tour is uh, like the shows have been so much better than I expected. I had really low expectations <laughs> for this. I was like, can we can we charge people $20 for this? And then I we should have charged like $20.50. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the shows have gone really well. I wasn't sure if we would be able to 
recreate the magic of the show in person on stage but the shows are actually even i think more fun than doing this alone three thousand miles apart somehow 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 Uh, somehow there has been amazing energy at both shows we're recording this on thursday having done one in boston on monday night one in new york on tuesday night we woke up in my childhood home I did. Katie was there. It was like some kind yeah, of nightmare. Very weird. <laughs> Got in the car by 8 a.m. with Katie and my brother. Uh, and we just talked it out. We had life. Kate, uh, my brother asked Katie the sort of like girl advice question he would ask me <laughs> if he respected me as an older brother, but he didn't. I am definitely the person to give men advice about dating women. Yeah. Definitely. So we just, we sort of talked it out. Um, it was a good good little road trip. And then the New York show and the Village Underground. Boston show was Laugh Boston. was great. The New York one was even better. It was like a packed-in crowd in a sold-out venue. Village Underground. And yeah, we're hoping to see more people Saturday night, two shows at Arlington, and then that's it. My favorite part of the show so far was at our show in New York. Uh, one of the uh, uh, There was a, a woman there who does sound or something like that for the venue. She works for the venue. Very good obviously trans and uh she was just making small talk with us and my wife was there with us and so i said you know i introduced her as my wife and so when she realized i don't think she needed me to probably say this is my wife to realize that i'm a homosexual but when she realized this she started talking about how we were family and how we were in the same tribe and she was giving us like recommendations of places to go as though i've never heard of the stonewall inn um and i just kept thinking this woman has no fucking clue who she's talking about who she's talking to it was fantastic I okay. I did. I got the sense that she was. There are divisions in the LGBT community, as you know. Totally. Didn't totally. you clock her as sort of the more old school type of trans person? Who That's was, just because she's old. That's the only reason you're saying that. No, she just had that like cool, like older, older LGBT elder vibe. She totally did, but she. I think she would have loved us. I think we would have explained to her the podcast. She would have loved us. Maybe, maybe. I, there, there is some quite like the people who work at these venues. The people who are there to come see us obviously know what we're about. But the people who work at the venues who have no idea might be a little bit traumatized, disgusted by what we have to say, which is fine. They're getting paid to be there. Um, Yeah, it'll be fine. But yes, the live show has been wonderful. We really appreciate you guys letting us do this. But let's get into it. So so first, why don't we talk about our own cancellation question mark? Yeah, let's start there. Oh, and before I start, I should, this goes without saying, but there's probably going to be some audio issues this episode. We're doing the best we can, but um, we apologize if Katie sounds even worse than usual. Yeah, you're probably going to hear some sirens, maybe a motorcycle, maybe a homeless man screaming about dogs. Oh, poor moose. Uh, okay, so yes, this this event. We were supposed to kick off this tour with an October 22nd event at Dartmouth. We did not mean to leave you guys hanging. We meant to tell you the story earlier. Stuff came up. Katie got sick. We had to plan the tour, blah, blah, blah. But uh, this story starts with a guy named Bob. Bob's a complicated figure. And Bob is not his actual name, by the way. Bob is not. His, we're not going to give his actual name. We're not that kind of podcast. We met Bob at the Heterodox Academy Conference. Bob works for something called the Political Economy Project at Dartmouth. And he said, do you want to maybe come to Dartmouth? We said- What's Dartmouth? What's Dart- we first, we said, what's Dartmouth College? Is that like one of those lower tier Ivies? It, uh, yes. And- uh, Long story short, we agreed to do an event there in part because we could just tack it on to the beginning of our tour, to these other three events at bars or comedy clubs. And uh, a couple Mondays ago, we woke up and we were no longer listed on the Political Economy Project on their upcoming calendar. We just disappeared, right? Well, how did you find that out? 
a couple of people asked me about it and someone asked Carol Hooven about it, who is going to, we're going to do this event with Carol Hooven, the Harvard evolutionary biologist and testosterone, AKA man juice expert. Stop and saying that. God. <laughs> this this was, has been an issue. One of the only hiccups on the tour yeah. has been that I started calling testosterone man juice. Yeah. He has stop. like Tourette's, but his only take is that he says man, ju- man-, man juice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So someone pointed out to Carol, I think one person emailed or Reddit messaged me, we were just gone from the website. So we're like, okay. So we emailed Bob. He's like, he said something about there's like some transition afoot. Hold, we'll, we'll have more news soon. We're like, uh, okay, we, we hope everything's okay. He's like, don't worry, the event's still going on. We figured it was a technical issue or something. We get an email from him that presents this as a done deal that the event has changed in a number of ways. There are three changes to the event. One is it's no longer sponsored by the Political Economy Project. We've just been dropped um, instead, it's being sponsored by something called Braver Spaces, I think, which if you look it up, there's no Brave Spaces or Braver Spaces. It's not a real organization. It doesn't exist. <laughs> we'll get to that. So Katie, that's a problem because we didn't agree to do an event with this organization, right? There has to be prior agreement. We are sponsored by this organization. Right. We had an agreement and we had never heard of this organization, which nobody had heard of because it literally doesn't exist. Right. Uh, the second thing is... Please allow the event sponsor to suggest minor format revisions, such as offering welcome remarks at the outset and collecting questions from note cards, um, which like, I don't know, in theory, maybe would have been fine if we discussed it, but this is five days before the event and they're, they're saying we want to change the format of the event. That's also just not cool because we had an agreement for, I think, six weeks or so. Right. And my concern with that particular change was that we don't know who they're talking about. We don't know what this introduction is going to be. Is this somebody who's going to come on stage and publicly disavow us? Like, we just need to have some idea about what we're getting into. And they yeah. d- didn't give us that. Yeah. I mean, so that that was, a, for me, not as big an issue. The biggest one by far was the event was no longer going to be open to everyone. It was only going to be open to Dartmouth students. And we have an email from the guy we organized this with, whose name we're not revealing, either here or in the show notes, where we show in early September, we agreed this would be an event that's open to the public. We said so over and over and over on this podcast. Some people, probably not a lot because nobody lives in New Hampshire, Vermont, but some people from those places were going to come to Hanover hoping to see us. And now we're being told five days before the event, that it's only for Dartmouth students. Yeah. I mean, my main concern was that people were going to show up to the event and we're going to get turned away. And I, I knew people who were driving from hours away and I didn't want them or anybody to show up and get turned away because they didn't have a Dartmouth student ID. That just we wouldn't have done the event yeah. for Dartmouth students in the first place. Like this is, we were doing this to have a public event. Um, so. Yeah. There, this was, this was not like, like we went, we we're going to New Hampshire and it, it wouldn't, the specific terms of the agreement we came to involved a public event. And five days before the event, we're told multiple changes had been made, in, including this one. So I get on the phone with Bob and basically what he tells me is that, I believe this is a Monday I'm talking to him. On Friday, um, there was word had spread that someone planned to protest. At Dartmouth, there's some sort of process where you have to like get a permit to protest, I guess, because it's a private university. Someone was going to protest either us or Carol. We have no idea who was going to protest or why. Or how many people. Or how many people are. It could have been one crank who was going to hold up a sign saying- It could have been Carlin, Carlin Borisenko. Right. 
I just think it her. Was someone who's just anti cargo shorts protester is my pick for who it was. I think there's a big contingent of that in uh, in wherever Dartmouth is, um, uh, Idaho. I think. Yeah. It's not. It's not a school most people have heard of. I think they were just trying to gain some. Notoriety. I mean, it's literally a community college. Literally. Uh, Dartmouth College, Dartmouth Community College. So because we don't know the details here, because of some combination of this one planned protest, and perhaps, we don't know, some people within the political economy project who don't like us, just like that, shit goes crazy. We are, political economy project no longer wants anything to do with us. We're dropped from the website without any consultation or explanation. Bob, the guy sponsoring us, he created a new group called Brave Spaces at Dartmouth College. I guess it's part of a broader sort of Brave Spaces movement to have difficult conversations. But because the political economy project soiled itself in fear at the prospect of maybe one protester showing up, A, we're now being sponsored by a new organization we've never heard of and didn't agree to be sponsored by. B, they're sort of locking down the event uh, so that only people with a Dartmouth ID can come. And it, and it was explained to me, and, and Bob explained a slightly different version of this to Carol, that the reason they locked down the event is they were worried some outside protester would come and protest, and that would be attributed to Dartmouth students, which I found ridiculous for multiple reasons. One is I sort of think if anyone is going to be mad at us for holding an event where we say there's two sexes, it's more likely to be a Dartmouth student than some rando, although who knows? That's one thing, but also just, just like... We, we can't let everyone into the event because someone might do something and then someone else might say they're a Dartmouth student when they're not. Does that logic make sense to you? I mean, I, I think they just pushed out. I think they were scared and I can see why they were scared because these things have gone wrong in the past, uh, but it wasn't communicated with us well. It was disappointing. And in the end, we figured, look, these are this is a violation of the contract that we would have had if we were smart enough to demand a contract. And we're not going to Dartmouth to talk to Dartmouth students. We're going to Dartmouth to talk to our listeners. And our listeners aren't going to be able to, to come here. So this is not we're not yeah. do, so we're not doing it. So technically but, I mean the contract thing's a lesson, but we did yes. like, to be clear, we had a clear email right. agreement, right. which is like if we wanted to be dicks about this, it is it's a contract. That is like yeah. it's an agreement. It, yeah, it's a for I mean it's complicated, I assume. But But we did learn that uh we need to have contracts. Well when <laughs> you're when you're dealing with some commuter college no one's heard of. Right. You need you need to get it down in writing because you cannot trust an institution like Dartmouth College to do the right thing. We should exactly. also say Bob told a slightly different version of the story to Carol. They're not mutually exclusive, but he said they they just didn't know what to do if a protest occurred at the building. Yeah. Like, they literally didn't know what to do. So... Here's what you do. You have the Dartmouth Criminal Justice. Some students from the, from the Dartmouth Criminal Justice Program come and do security. Surely they have future cops at Dartmouth College. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, some tough kids from the Tech Vogue Program or, like, the car. Maybe. Like the wrestling team. Um, I... I Maybe there's something missing there. I found that fucking ridiculous because what you do is if someone is so disruptive, they're breaking the law, you remove them. Uh, as right. someone pointed out you to me. You muzzle them. You literally, you torture them in front of everyone to make yeah. an example of them. This I, you tickle them. This idea that Dartmouth College and its $8 billion endowment didn't know how to handle a potential protester is is so embarrassing to Dartmouth, as is this whole event. And I just... If anything comes out of this, I hope people realize that if you're invited to speak there, you should really think twice because they will absolutely make your life more complicated if there's a hint of trouble. Um, and I think Bob was put in a difficult position, but to make all these changes 
without informing us and to expect us to be okay with that was ridiculous. Uh, they also seriously balked and dragged their feet about paying us and we're still fighting over they were going to pay for travel. Katie had to take a different flight. They're, it's just, again, $8 billion endowment. They're trying to rip us off uh, to the tune of- For not. a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. Jesse, it's, it's ridiculous. You, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I just Googled Braver Spaces, which until a second ago was what I thought the name of the organization was. Braver Spaces does exist. It's a, quote, program that helps college employees become conversant with the spectrum of LGBTQ identities, cultures, and experiences. <laughs> They probably would not have sponsored us. They probably would not have. One other thing about this, please don't like figure out who Bob is and go harass anybody. Uh, this was disappointing to us. It was disappointing to the people who are going to who are going to come to the show. It's probably disappointing to the protester who was you know had maybe already made his her or their signs. Uh, so the whole thing was disappointing. But I don't think that I I think Bob is in a in a difficult position. I think he tried to do the right thing and really. Poorly. He tried to do the right thing. He hit some institutional walls. Um, we also probably should have anticipated that this was going to happen with the two of us and Carol Hooven. And uh, so I just, I want to personally ask people not to go and write angry emails to Bob. Um, I think Katie and I, dis- we don't disagree about Bob. Bob didn't do anything wrong. We can be open about disagreeing. I, I w- want to be more dramatic about this because I think when these institutions do shitty things, they deserve to have reputational damage inflicted on them. Not harassment, not threats, but this was a cowardly institution. I would not advise anyone to go talk there. That's my opinion, not necessarily Katie's. Maybe we should move on. You want to cancel them. I want to cancel them. I want the the family members of the cafeteria workers doxxed, obviously. Um, I don't want that. I will also say that I was a little bit relieved because it was going to be an insane amount of travel for me. I was gonna, I was gonna, I was landing at six p.m. I had to wait in the airport for three hours and then take a three-hour shuttle to New Hanover. So it was going to be like a fifteen-hour travel day for me, uh, and I was sick. So. Did you say New Hanover? New Hanover, wherever it was. Yeah, that's not what it's what called. What is it? No, but, no, but like, again, the, we should not have, we should only go to like universities people have heard of. No one no, knows. No. Where place anyway, is. it was like, especially because I was sick, it was sort of a relief. So, uh, so unfortunate, but also anytime, so I, anytime I'm obligated to do something and it's canceled, some part of me is relieved. I'm an this agoraphobe. Is, I'm sorry. This has been interesting because I always assumed that you were fundamentally a more petty person than me. <laughs> But you're holding you're holding me back in terms of what we say about this and how we say it rather than vice versa. Well, I mean, I just I don't want it I just don't want this to become a big fucking thing. I don't want anybody to get fired. I don't want anybody to get publicly no, shamed I'm for this. No, I'm not getting fired. I don't want anybody to be publicly shamed for this. It's an unfortunate no one's thing. Getting publicly shamed. It wasn't Bob's fault. It wasn't Bob's fault. I I just I feel bad for Bob. Me too. I don't feel bad for us. Anyway, we did not go to Dartmouth. We're never going to Dartmouth. Sorry, Dartmouth. What? I don't know. I still don't Where, understand. Whatever what you are. Is, but okay, why don't we move on? Should we do housekeeping? In the, it's a hockey team. Dartmouth? It's mostly a hockey team with like a, a, a tech vote college around it. Should we do housekeeping? Let's do it. This is Blockchain Reported. We're a, a podcast, uh, usually better production values than this. <laughs> Blockchain Reported podcast at gmail.org if you want to reach out to us. Maybe email us like a YouTube guide to, to plugging mics into a mixer. That would be useful. Yeah, explain what a mixer is first. I don't know if it's a mixer. I have this like boxy thing with dials and um, knobs. It could be like a sex That's toy. a refrigerator. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're on Reddit at blockchainreported.reddit.com and go to blockchainreported.org also to check out our premium content. You get 
three extra episodes a month, mostly not us whining about having been semi-canceled for $5 a month. What's the most recent one we did? Uh, we did an AMA that has not been published yet. Oh, uh, that'll be published soon. That one was good. I got to edit that tomorrow. And before that, we did... I have no idea. Dog. That was a dog Oh, we one. did dog. We did, yeah. Moose, moose, moose we dog. did dog. Yeah. And if you're hearing this before... If you're primo and you're hearing this before Saturday, October... I mean, it's barely worth it. You won't have much time. You might get, be able to see our late Arlington show on the 20... Yeah, 29th. 9th? Yeah, that sounds right. October 29th, Arlington Cinnamon Draft House. Two shows. First one sold out. Second one, Doors, I think 9.30, show at 10. It's going to be good. We're ha- we have a special guest coming. We do have a special guest. Uh, all right, Katie, let's get back to other people's bullshit. Okay, Jesse, until recently, did the name Hobart mean anything to you? I think there's a Hobart and William Smith like liberal arts school or conservative college or something, but no. Other than that, no. Okay, so Hobart is a literary journal that's mostly online, but has done some print editions. At first, I thought it was called Hobart Pulp because the URL is hobartpulp.com, but it's actually just called Hobart. It's been around since 20, uh, 2001. Uh, it publishes poetry, fiction, nonfiction, etc. It's won some prizes. It's published some biggish names, including, for instance, Roxanne Gay. It is currently edited by Elizabeth Allen, who has been working uh, with Hobart for almost 20 years. And recently... Hobart, the journal, and Elizabeth Allen became a story in itself when the website published an interview with a writer named Alex Perez. Jesse, had you heard of Alex Perez before this? I had not. Okay, so he's a former minor league baseball player. He basically aged out of baseball and decided to become a writer. He's Cuban-American by way of Miami. Uh, So he started out writing fiction, but now he mostly publishes nonfiction at places like Tablet, Unheard, and The Spectator. So Jesse, based on those publications, what would you assume about Alex and his work? I think he is a, imagine me saying this with capital letters, a heterodox thinker. Yes, he's basically anti-woke, as like stupid as that term is, and you can also stereotypically Alex Perez, baseball player. I think Cuban. I think not woke. Yeah, you can you can tell this from the subject of some of his work. I looked at his author page on Unheard. Here's some of the headlines: Hispanic America is turning right. How DeSantis toppled Mickey Mouse. Why Hispanics (laughs) gave up on the left, and why Latinos stumped for Trump. You can sense the theme here, right? Yeah. He's not using the term Latinx. Which is offensive. Yeah. Alex is also a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is the most prestigious MFA program in the country. He's not the typical Iowa grad. Uh, Like most MFA programs, Iowa tends to attract people from a certain milieu, that is upper class white people, although I would assume that they have tried to diversify their students and faculty in recent years like everyone else, at least when it comes to race, if not class and politics. Alex is not from that milieu. He says in this interview that he did with Hobart that his mom's reaction when he told her he got into Iowa Writers Workshop was K. (laughs) So not K as in K, like, okay, K as in the Spanish question, what? What? Yeah, she didn't know what Iowa uh, Writers Workshop was. So for that and other reasons, Alex refers to himself within this interview as the Iowa pariah. And and that was his experience at Iowa was a big part of this interview. It was published on septem- September 29th under the headline, Alex Perez on the Iowa Writers Workshop Baseball, Growing Up Cuban American in Miami and Saying Goodbye to the Literary Community. And it got very little attention when it was first published. But then two weeks later, a Hobart editor named Evan Fleischer posted a thread about this on Twitter, and then all hell broke loose, including the mass resignation of Hobart's editors. Okay, so this triggers a mass resignation because of this guy, Evan Fleischer's 
thread? Well, because of the interview. So they posted their resignation letter on the website, but someone, presumably Elizabeth Allen, pulled it down. We do have an archive of the letter, thanks to the Wayback Machine, and it reads, in part, After considerable private conversations, Hobart's understein Saft editors are resigning from Hobart effective immediately. The publication of Alex Perez's interview reflects a continued pattern of behavior on the part of a single editor, Elizabeth Allen, to prioritize attention driven by outrage rather than forwarding innovative work that adds new perspectives to to Hobart and the literary community. And then they go on to write that one reason they are resigning is because, quote, Elizabeth Allen has a legal claim to be a presence at Hobart that cannot be easily altered. What do you how do you uh, interpret that? Oh, that they would want to have her removed from her position because they're so outraged, but they legally can't. So they're taking their balls and going home or their lack of balls. Yeah. Yeah. I think like I think what that means is she's the boss and they can't fire her because she's above them. Yeah. They also write in this letter, quote, the content that started all this was regressive, harmful, and also just boring writing. The misogyny and white supremacy were treated with empathetic engagement. White supremacy? Yeah. Alex Perez, the white supremacist. And that sucked beyond measure. All this led to attention being taken from the work we are proud to have published, much of it by the very writers Perez denigrated in his interview. And this was echoed in an article about this whole thing at LitHub uh, that contained this particularly critical passage, quote, if these perennial banalities, which like all cliches have some truth to them, were the sum of the conversation, nobody would be talking about it. But Perez and Ellen wrap it up in Trump era vocabularies of grievance, bitterness, anti-wokeness, self-aggrandizement, and crucial to the mix, some deeply hurtful racism and misogyny, plus some of their own tokenizing of the working class. They clearly sought outrage and they got it. Okay, so the person who wrote this at LitHub, his name is Johnny Diamond. There's a little picture of him um, by his byline on the website. He- Johnny Diamond? Is he like a, a failed former card shark? <laughs> He's a white guy. And I do, like, I don't... I don't believe in identitarianism. I think it's bad, but I do think there is something a little bit funny about this white guy accusing a Cuban American and a woman of racism and misogyny. Yeah, it sounds about right, though. He's got to be a good white man. He's Johnny Diamond. What was uh, what was so bad about this interview? I mean, surely you wouldn't call something white supremacist unless it was like really white supremacist. Right, right. I'll read you some excerpts that piss people off. You can be the judge. So in one part, Elizabeth Allen basically asked Alex if there's a hegemony in publishing that prevents stories outside of the liberal mainstream from being published. So she says, quote, I think I should be able to write a compelling, well-written story about a pro-life advocate, despite myself personally being pro-choice, or someone who is unvaccinated, or someone who is bro-y, whatever that means, without anything bad happening to them, or without them realizing they're wrong and having it and having it accepted by a major magazine. But you know it wouldn't be taken. And so she asked them what his take on is this. Like, do you see this one-sided representation? And here's how he responds. This is a mindset that views whiteness in America as inherently problematic, if not evil. And this sensibility animates every decision made by publishers, editors, agents. White people bad, brown people good, America bad, men bad, white women, I think bad, unless they don a pussy hat. All right, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. He says, we know who they are. You know too, reader. Go on, whisper it to yourself. It's okay, I promise. Fine, you can't do it. That's why I'm here. The Iowa pariah will say it for you. I'm working the gimmick already. Here it goes. 80% of agents, editors, publishers are white women from a certain background and sensibility. Those woke ladies run the industry. 
And contrary to popular belief, I don't hate the Brooklyn ladies. On the contrary, I respect how these passive-aggressive prude ladies took over an industry. Tip of the hat, Brooklyn ladies. Skipping ahead a little bit, he says, These women, perhaps the least diverse collection of people on the planet, decide who is worthy and unworthy of literary representation. Their worldview trickles down to the small journals, too, which are mostly run by woke young women or bored middle-aged housewives. This explains why everything reads and sounds the same, from major publishing houses to vanity zines with a readership of 15. The progressive woke orthodoxy is the ideology that controls the entire publishing apparatus. Okay, Jesse, what's your reaction to this? Everything he said is true in terms of the controversies I've been aware of or covered in the publishing world, mostly young adult. He's he's making a stronger argument, which is that they also apply in like zine spaces or smaller publishing houses. I found, and again, it's a biased sample because these are controversies or I wouldn't know about them, an incredible just wave of conformity and like really like drop of a hat anger at anyone who says the wrong thing politically like some of the ya and and increasingly adult fiction controversies are just batshit insane and i do think women women do these days sort of dominate the publishing industry i feel like we have some stats on this right no one no one thinks like the average fiction editor is a white dude these days, right? I, I'm not wrong about that, right? Well, we, we actually do have some stats on this. So I asked a few different people to weigh in, one of whom was Lee Stein. Uh, she's the author of, of, of some great books, uh, one of which self-care, I think we probably talked about on the show. It was fantastic. So Lee sent me a report, and this is, uh, this is from 2019. Things probably changed a bit after 2020, the racial reckoning. But the publishing industry, 76% white, 74% cis woman, 81% straight, 89% non-disabled. I'm actually surprised there's 11% disabled people. Wait, wait. 76% white is the total industry and 74% cis woman. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so it is it is truly female dominated. Yeah, it is. Um, and Lee also said... Quote, book publishing is an elite industry for people who can afford to work low-paying jobs in, in, in New York City. She also said that she doesn't agree with Alex that everything sounds the same. But she said, I do agree that white women in book publishing are looking for writing from marginalized voices as long as those voices have the correct progressive politics. I also, I reached out to my own agent about this. My own agent, he represents me. He is definitely not woke or anything close to it. He disagreed with Alex. He basically said, no, that's not what publishing looks like. That's not how it works. Um, I did, however, talk to someone who works for one of the big five publishing houses. And he said it was, quote, a bit over the top at times, but the industry is not far off from that. He also said that at his publisher, quote, there are wonderful liberal white women who have been tortured by their supposed racism. And every book they considered did often have to meet that criteria above. That's the, what Alex was talking about. Books by white men were often dismissed in language that was like, well, we don't need these stories anymore. So I think that Alex, he might have been slightly exaggerating, but I think that there is a lot of truth to what he was saying. And this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. No. And to me, the saddest part of it, and, and I'm basing this on like emails I got from aspiring YA authors three or four years ago, it's this really sort of sick thing where like white editors or agents from privileged backgrounds, they want stories from black or brown or Asian people, but very specific stories and, and stories that line up with the white liberal worldview about race. And we... We saw a great example of this when I interviewed Alberto Galaba Jr., mm -hmm. 
who was not able to sell a book that told a very authentic, torn from his own real life story about black uh, college students at UVA, University of Virginia, uh, because basically it made white gatekeepers uncomfortable. So right. I've always found that dynamic really fucked up because they're they're not actually seeking diversity. They're seeking diversity that makes them feel good or, or maybe maybe makes them feel bad in some cases. Right, right. And the interesting thing about that case with Alberto was that his agent was under the, the like, he was, uh, what, Filipino, Hawaiian? He was Asian-American. Uh, Bur- uh, Gulaba is Filipino. Yeah, by way of Hawaii. And his agent was interested in his in selling his book because his agent thought that he was black. <laughs> yeah. And then when he, when he, like, said, actually, no, I'm Filipino, then the agent, like, fucking disappeared on him. Silence. Yeah. yeah. And um, I'm proud of that episode. So I hope people go back and listen to it who haven't. But the highlight to me was a sensitivity reader who was a woman of a young woman of Caribbean descent who lived in the UK. She was going to tell whether or not he was being authentic and fair to characters who were black Americans in the mid Atlantic region. Right. All, you know, because she had the right skin color. So she can clearly be, it's just, it's, it's gross. Like, it's superficial. Liberal, it's incredibly superficial and essentialist. Okay. So there's another, I want to read you another section of this that made people mad of this interview with Alex Perez. My earliest influences, predictably, were Bukowski, Kerouac, and Hemingway. As a former jock, I was attracted to those guys and their strong, masculine writing right away. Being Hispanic, Juno Diaz, of course, was revelatory. You could write about fucked up Hispanic shit and white people would eat it up. If you're out there, Juno, come back. Don't let those angry white ladies who begged you for blurbs run you out of the game. No seas pendejo. Okay, Jesse, do you remember the allegations against Juno Diaz? Yeah, I remember some of them, but you should definitely refresh my memory. Okay, so this was in May 2018. A writer named Zinzi Clemens publicly confronted Diaz at a writer's conference in Australia. She claimed that he cornered her and forcibly kissed her while she was a graduate student at Columbia. So that's that's assault. That's bad. Uh, a couple hours later, she repeated this allegation on Twitter. She said, quote, I was an unknown, wide-eyed 26-year-old, and he used it as an opportunity to corner and forcibly kiss me. I'm far from the only one he has done this to. I refuse to be silent anymore. I told several people this story at the time. I have emails he sent me afterward, barf, that happened, and I have receipts. Okay, so she says this publicly. Then, soon after, two other writers, Carmen Maria Mercado and Monica Byrne, responded by saying that Diaz had verbally abused them. Then an author named Alyssa Valdez uh, wrote a blog post accusing him of misogynic abuse as well. And this became a huge story. And Diaz, and this was, you know, uh, the Me Too movement started in what, October 2017. So this is right after sort of this is like the first first maybe second wave of allegations. And so he issued a statement that became a, an international story. He, so in his statement, he said he took responsibility for his actions. Here's a quote. This conversation is important and must continue. I am listening to and learning from women's stories in this essential and overdue cultural movement. We must continue to teach all men about consent and boundaries. Big fucking mistake. Uh, he later said that he regretted making this statement and that the allegations against him were false. Now, in one case, we do know that the allegations were false because there's an audio recording of it. Have you ever listened to this, Jesse? Yeah, this is this was uh, the Mikado one, right? 
Yeah, so she claimed that Diaz berated her when she asked him a question during a Q&A at an event in 2012. And someone put the audio of this event online and you can I listened to the whole thing. He disagreed with her. He did not bully her or berate her. This one has always gotten to me. I know a lot of people who like her writing. I actually have one of her books. I just haven't read it. I, why why won't she just admit that she misremembered or she I don't know. There's ways for her to wriggle out of this without being a liar, but she's never she's never done that, right? Not as far as I know. And so the the probably you know the worst of these allegations are that he forcibly kissed somebody, and I have reason to believe this isn't true, which I'm going to say on the podcast again because I already accidentally spilled this on the show once, so I think it's okay if I do it again. But basically, a large news outlet that you've all heard of investigated the claims into Diaz and found that he kissed Clemens on the cheek when she was in a group of people who he also kissed on the cheeks. I was told this during a like stone conversation with a journalist who was involved in this and completely forgot where I'd heard it and said it on the podcast. And then I got a text from that journalist who was like, by the way, it was me you heard this from. <laughs> um, regardless, MIT, where he was employed, invested, investigated Diaz and clear, he was cleared by the investigation. That doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't do it. He's a star faculty member, and so there could be some, clearly, some reason to protect uh, him. But I find it very hard to believe in that moment. I think you're operating from a 1980 mindset there. I think, I think. Well, you didn't let me finish. He did, oh, like, sorry, in sorry. that moment during the height of Me Too, even if he's a Pulitzer winner, it would have looked better for the university to can him yeah, than sorry. not. Yeah. I, sh- I need to let women speak. You let women speak. So Thank you. Yes. Do you think that, um, during the intro to the Boston show, when I went down and kissed everyone in the front row on the cheek, that was a bad idea. That was not far from MIT. I mean, that was a little bit weird, but what was it was like made a little bit better because then you gave all the guys hand jobs, so it was like very clear that it was equal opportunity. Not all the guys. I okay, would. just the cute ones. <laughs> okay, so Alex Perez saying Juno come back clearly rubs some of the Hobart editors the wrong way, despite the fact that Diaz has been exonerated by these allegations. And I, I looked... But not in the court of public opinion. Right. That's the only one that matters. And I, I looked him up recently. I just like looked him up uh, like Google News or whatever. And he is still doing stuff. He hasn't completely disappeared from the public eye, but his 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 profile has certainly smaller, I would say. We hung out after the New York shows with like multiple canceled media people, and it's very interesting to hear their story. So, uh, Juno Diaz, come on, Blocked Reported. I'm sure he's listening right now. Okay, so after the editors resigned in mass, Elizabeth Allen posted a short response uh, of her own to the Hobart website. She says, I never wanted to run this ship. Frankly, I'd rather spend my time writing. It is also more than a little heartbreaking to watch a mutiny. I have undying respect for the founder of this journal. That one might feel one's livelihood at risk due to an interview one didn't even read is odd, if not troubling, but perhaps evidence of our times. Okay, so I got in touch with Alex and just asked him how he was doing, how he felt about this. He said, the mob was hateful and intense, but it's important to note that I received tons of support from writers who started going against the mob. I think the mob was surprised about this because as soon as they received pushback, they started disappearing and going on Twitter hiatuses, etc. The support <laughs> is important. Yeah. <laughs> the support is important because it signals a shift in the writing world, I think. People are tired of the current literary scene. I received messages from dozens of writers in support, big names and 
small. He also says that Elizabeth Ellen bore the brunt of the hate and he thinks it's because she's a woman. I'm not sure I agree with that because I think that a man running this interview with a man, especially yeah. a white man, would have gotten even more hate. It's interesting he said that because he's, he's not, it's sort of a tick. People say like, well, a woman got, I mean, sometimes women get it worse, but there's definitely situations where men are, yeah, anyway. I'm with yeah, you. I think she got it worse because she's the person in power and because there's a backstory here. So I emailed Elizabeth Allen to try to get some comment from her. She didn't respond to me, but she did tweet this from the official Hobart account. When women piss people off, it's another level of anger, rage directed at them than at men. There's her sexism. I learned that in 2014. I'm stronger now. Words no longer hurt me. I hope every woman feels this strong at some point in her life, this unafraid, this liberated, truly. So, Jesse, any idea what happened in 2014? No. Okay, so in 2014, she published an essay also on Hobart called An Open Letter to the Internet. This is no longer available on Hobart's website, but I have an archive of it. And the essay came in response to another literary scandal that very much presages some of the later Me Too cases. So basically, some well-known figures in the literary scene, including Tao Lin and Stephen Tully Derricks, I'd never heard of him, uh, had been accused of sexual and emotional abuse. And in her essay, Elizabeth Ellen is basically like, look, these guys might be assholes, but they aren't rapists. And she also admits some of her own past sins, including essentially molesting a few children when she herself was a child. I, that sounds sort of, I don't know how to put it. It kind of sounds like molesting a child. It always, she was a child. Not that that's not terrible, but like, yeah, kind of like. It's a weird thing to it. Yeah. You did, I don't think you can blame. A, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And she like not like a 14 year old. She was like a young child. Okay. So after she published this, there was a rash of essays condemning her, including one by the writer now known as Daniel Lavery. Uh, and Ellen, Ellen experienced basically the, the 2014 version of cancellation, including a story being cut, a story of hers being cut after it had already been accepted for a publication in, in an anthology or something. So I'm pretty sure that's what she was talking talking about in her tweet, but it seems like her response to getting canceled is neither to apologize nor shut the fuck up about it, which I appreciate. Um, Anyway, if any editors are looking for a gig right now, uh, I hear Hobart is hiring. They're on hiatus, but they're going to come back next year. I I found it gratifying that the people scream, like the interview, I found it very entertaining. I saw why people would be offended by it. Is that the end of the world that people are offended? There's uh, being offended. So what? I know that's what I mean. Like unless something is is like a personal is attack on you personally, unless he calls you out by name, like that's one thing. But this sort of like I'm offended on behalf of whoever. I just don't really understand it, that. It's also like the whether or not you think he's overgeneralizing, there is in fact a type of Brooklyn white lady who feels very strongly about this stuff. And you know what? There's also a type of Brooklyn white dude. And I I don't think we can forever do this thing where you're allowed to make sweeping generalizations about subpopulations of men. But as soon as you do it about a woman, you're a massage. He, he may have been overgeneralizing about the situation, but there is, I know exactly who he's talking about. I've met them. Like it's a type. It's okay. There are types of people. He's not making fun of them for their race. He's saying white people tend to have these politics in Brooklyn, which is like, I think some of the people were mad because they know a lot of this is true, especially the stuff, again, maybe exaggerated. It's absolutely true that within the literary community, if you express the wrong politics, your career can be fucked overnight. Um, so I think people are bad because he's, you know, there's that glint of recognition. 
Well, it's also kind of interesting because in other circumstances, like making fun of white people is absolutely it's not just a, a permitted you have to it's encouraged that's what, that's what i love right. about this like you can be like right oh white people are dying of opiate addictions because of their racism <laughs> it's like an actual thing people have said yeah. but then also some brooklyn white ladies are annoying and intolerant oh how dare you like right, it's just right. I, it's so um i this was one of those cases where because i'm immature and as we've mentioned petty I got more delight out of seeing people melt down about this than I like, than I didn't invest that much in considering how much I agreed with the interview. I was just entertained by it. And I love the fact that they couldn't do anything about it. They had to leave. And now Hobart can have editors who are not idiots. It's great. Uh, I mean, hopefully Hobart will get more editors or Elizabeth Ellen is going to have quite a bit of work on her hands doing this on her, on her own. I hope that she's able to go talk about her experiences at the political economy project at Dartmouth. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Jesse, any questions about this or comments? No, it's, uh, I, yeah, that was good. I like that. I like that you told me that story. Thank you, Katie. We should probably. You definitely would not have known about it had I not told you about it. If anyone wants to know what we're doing after we sign off, we are picking up Italian sandwiches. That was my decision. Uh-huh. We're picking up fancy Brooklyn beers for the beer-loving friend I'm staying with in D.C. And then you and me have four hours alone in my 2022 Corvette together. Uh, it's a 2009 Camry with giant scratches on the uh, and the, the interiors all ripped up from the children trying to get out of the car. That wall came out uh-huh, of nowhere, uh-huh. Katie. I believe that. My uh, yes, I'm thinking about eating a lot of a lot of pot candy so that I can pass out in the car. How, how's that sound to you? If you pass out, I'm going to put on either music you hate or a podcast you'll hate. So either one, that's fine. I'll be asleep. We can negotiate this in person. Okay. <laughs> when you come out of the other room. Because we're literally 20 feet apart. This has been Blocked and Reported. Thank you, as always, for tracing Wood Grains for his help with production. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, by the power vested in me as co-host of this podcast, I hereby expel Dartmouth College, whatever that is, from the Ivy League, whatever that is. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, Jesse, we have three days left. Don't make eye contact with me.